Consider this, 100% of owners will leave their business one day, but few are prepared. Are you? Don't worry, you're in the right place with this podcast, Succession Stories. Host Lori Barkman, the business transition Sherpa, guides you from transition to transaction, from building value in your business to letting go. Lori is a business transition and M&A advisor, specializing in growth, acquisitions, and selling owner-led companies. She's also the author of the Business Transition Handbook. Get your copy and learn how to avoid succession pitfalls and create valuable exit options. Sign up for a business transition newsletter at successionstories.com. Show us the love by subscribing to the show and posting a review. We appreciate you. Now, here's this week's Succession Stories with Lori Barkman. Welcome back to the Succession Stories podcast. If you're not already, please give me a follow on LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe to the show, and if you enjoy it, do me a favor and leave a rating and review in your favorite podcast player. Share this show with others who might enjoy it as well. Now for today's episode, I spoke with Ross Brannon, tax shelter and private equity consultant at Coastal One. We chose a topic many business owners find elusive, tax strategies to consider when selling your company. My intention is that you won't wait until you're in a transaction to learn about these strategies. It's called financial planning for a reason. We need to plan. Ross unpacks various tax deferral and tax mitigation strategies, including opportunity zones and installment sales. One of my favorite parts of our conversation is about the importance of planning for life after selling your business. Ross shares why he doesn't believe in retirement. I hope it helps inspire your approach and impact in the next chapter of your life. Enjoy this Succession Stories episode about tax strategies to consider when selling your business with Ross Brannon. Ross Brannon, welcome to Succession Stories. It's wonderful to be with you on the other side of the mic. We met recently because of your podcast. I'm excited to be with you. Thanks so much, Lori. Pleasure to be here. Why don't we start with you? Tell me your origin story. How did you become a tax reduction specialist? Well, I started in traditional financial services. I did that for about 12 or 13 years. And I came to the realization that you could do great investment planning, which you wouldn't know for at least a decade. You could do great retirement planning, which you wouldn't know for at least two or three decades. And you could do great insurance planning, and you wouldn't know unless something catastrophic happened. And so I said, what's the best way to help clients? What's the most value that I could provide? It's like, well, I could help them reduce their taxes. And they would know typically by April 15th of the next year, whether we did a good job or not. So I took a deep dive in the wormhole of taxes, and it's a lot deeper than I originally imagined, and ended up meeting some people and partnered with, with, with my current partner, and the rest is history. The rest is history. And tell me about a typical client engagement. Are these people calling you saying, hey, I'm being really proactive and I've got 10 years ahead of me and I really want to plan this out. Or are they calling you saying, I've got a deal in play right now. What do I do? Well, you as well as I both know no one's calling you 10 years in advance and saying, hey, I'm thinking that forward thinking. You would love to have a client like that. Yes, I would. So so what I basically do is I help high income people legally reduce their taxes. and I help people with large capital gain events legally reduce their taxes. What I have found that works best 
is not necessarily dealing with a client so much as dealing with the CPA or the attorney. I have found since they are the trusted advisor, if I talk to them, I will talk to the client at some point and I will say, introduce me your attorney or your CPA. And then I have a conversation with them explaining what I do, how I do it. Typically they like that because it helps them, helps them provide more value. And that's where we go from there. Or I meet a CPA and I'm like, hey, you have this fact pattern client that we could talk about some things. They do. And they're like, here's John Doe. Like right now, John Doe is selling his tree cutting business for $10 million. I had no idea there was that much money in cutting trees. There's a lot of money in cutting trees, apparently. <laughs> but uh, this guy is early 40s, selling his business for $10 million. The CPA, you know, brings me in. We're having those conversations. And this closing was supposed to, when I was brought in, was supposed to happen in 30 days. So that was a really short timeline. Obviously, the sooner someone can be involved, the more options there are. But luckily for people, there are options all the way up and after the closing of the transaction. Okay, let's unpack this a little bit. I've had a number of professionals come on this show. And for me in my career, I've worked with a number of professionals. So I don't get as intimidated as I used to. But a lot of people hear tax, tax advising, tax planning, and think, oh, my God, this is so complicated. How in the world do we simplify this? It can be very complicated. When you deal in it every day, it's not as complicated, just like physics is not as complicated for a physicist as it is for you and I. There are lots of strategies that one can use to mitigate taxes. So let's use a really easy one that a lot of people have heard about. You could do charitable planning. Now, whether you're charitable or not doesn't matter for this topic of conversation. You could donate your business to a charity, set up a charity yourself. We don't want to get in the weeds in it. When you sell your business, it's tax-free. Now, then you can create an income and retirement off of that business. That's a super easy thing to do. Now, the challenge is not everyone's charitable. Some people are, and even if they are, they may not want to do that. But there's all sorts of different types of transactions. You could do an installment sale, which a lot of people heard about. There's a lot of that going on out there. And there's some do's and don'ts in that world. There's some tax codes specifically for that. And there's some more advanced strategies as well that are always popping up that are facts and circumstance specific. But ultimately, you have to realize is it's not one size fits all. Everything is facts and circumstance, circumstance specific. And also, a lot of you know this and a lot of people listening probably know, but they may not, is if you're selling your business for $10 million, there's a few different tranches of capital in there. There's basis. So let's suppose there's $2 million of basis. Well, you take that out. That's not taxable. So now you have to explain basis. So it's basically, all right, the easiest way to explain it, in my opinion, is buying a piece of real estate. So I bought a piece of real estate for $200,000. I sold it for $400,000. $200,000 is my basis, my cost of starting the business or cost of buying a house, and $200,000 is my gain. That gain is taxable in that situation. So if I have a $10 million sale and I have $2 million of basis, that's the money I have in the business. That's the purchase price I have in the, I bought the business for. It can get a little more complicated because of depreciation, things like that, but that $2 million we set aside. Now we have $8 million of gain. Well, not all of that is tax to capital gains. Some of that will likely be taxed as ordinary income. 
And so you have different tranches of capital that are taxed different ways that you can use different strategies to address different tax, different um, chunks of money that are taxed in different ways, if that makes sense. Gotcha. This audience may not know about installment sales. You mentioned it briefly. I think perhaps I've mentioned it in some shows. I don't think I've done a full episode on it. And yes, there's pros and cons to everything. But because you brought it up, why don't you explain a little bit about installment sales, what it is, how it works, and if people Google it, why they'll see some pros and cons on it. Well, the monetized installment sale has been, it's an IRS dirty dozen. So if you were doing that, which they were doing this up until two or three years ago, if you do it now, you're likely going to have some challenges with the IRS. So that's the big red, big red flag out there. So there's a different type of installment sale called a deferred installment sale, or you might call it a deferred sales trust, which is just a branded all that is is a branded version of a deferred installment sale. It's not bad. It's just it's good marketing. There's a group, and they've got some standards with it, which I think is probably positive. You can defer the gain on your sale for up to 30 years. At the end of 30 years, you then pay the tax. So it's a time value of money play. You invest the dollars. Anytime you take money out, though, it's taxable. Now, Many times people push that and they will push other financial products on the back end to pay the tax, which I think can become a little unscrupulous. And I'm being a little generic on purpose here and just so I don't start any fires. And there is a way you can also do uh, an installment, like what they call a structured installment sale, where you give your proceeds to an insurance company and then you get a check for the rest of your life. It's almost like an annuity, basically is an annuity. That's an option as well. You're not really going to hear about structured installment sales much. They're pretty vanilla. They're good for the right people. You will likely hear, if you do any research, you will hear about the DST. Most people don't realize it basically is an installment sale. But the monetized installment sale is the big red flag. You just want to avoid it. IRS is coming out against that. So it absolutely can be... Um, a powerful strategy. You are deferring the tax. You are not eliminating the tax. So one clarification. This episode is sponsored by the best-selling book, The Business Transition Handbook, How to Avoid Succession Pitfalls and Create Valuable Exit Options. Business owners will learn how to navigate the emotional and practical nature of the transition process to avoid exit regrets. It's crucial to start planning when time is on your side so you don't leave money or your happiness on the table. Reading this book, you'll have Lori Barkman, the business transition Sherpa, guiding you along the way. To download a free copy, head to thebusinesstransitionhandbook.com. That's thebusinesstransitionhandbook.com today. So if a business owner is thinking five, seven years out, which more and more people are as shows like mine and yours and others are talking about these issues for, for folks, how to think ahead. It's important, right? We're basically helping them maximize their net proceeds. And as you said, if we can get closer to that number that they have in mind, then that's that's great. For folks like myself that are working on the transaction, if we want to help them ultimately get the purchase price they're looking for, it's that's just one piece of the math, right? It's really about that net number 
And the more taxes they think they're going to pay, the more pressure it puts on the purchase price and the selling process to try to get there. I, I think one of the things a lot of people miss is most people, when they come to someone like you, they want to sell by the end of the week or the end of the month because they've hit an emotional overwhelm point where like they're just done. The challenge is if they were to talk to you two or three years in advance, and if today their business worth was worth two, $10 million, after talking to you and working with you for two or three years, their business might be worth 12 to $15 million. And so they're going to get a substantial ROI. So that by itself is going to give them more money regardless of taxes. But the other challenge is a lot of people sell their business and they say, hey, I want to sell for 15 because subconsciously they know they're going to pay three or $4 million in taxes plus some negotiation. They're trying to clear net, or trying to clear 10, trying to net 10. And you're like, in reality, you know that their business is worth 10 and it would sell at 10. There's no way on earth it'll sell at 15. But by using some of the strategies that we use, what if you could clear 10 or nine and a half or nine worst case scenario by when you sell it for 10? So if you sell it for 15, maybe you're clearing it for 14, 14 and a half or 15. But if you're selling it for 10, you can actually price it appropriately and get the money you want to get or you need to get to live the life that you want to live the rest of your life. Which would be amazing. You shared a couple of examples. Do you have a few more examples of what business owners can do? From a tax mitigation standpoint? Yes. So in the Trump tax cuts at the end of 2017, there was uh, what's tax IRC code 1400Z. It's opportunity zone tax code. It implemented this, this structure and this tax strategy called opportunity zones. And some people are familiar with it, but not everyone's fully informed on it. There's 8,800 opportunity zones in the United States. These are census designated numbers, pieces of uh, locations, geographic areas. And so they're economically depressed areas. So you immediately think these are on the bad side of town. These are not great areas. And that's what I immediately thought. Well, about 10% of them are viable economic development, redevelopment opportunities. So uh, my partner has a condo in Tampa. In his, his neighborhood is an opportunity zone. And there are eight and a half million dollar condos in his neighborhood. Because this is based on 2010 data. And this area was an industrial area back in 2010. Now, it's one of the fastest growing areas in his city. Now, a lot of people hear about opportunity zones, and there's a lot of opportunity zones out there, but people don't know how to tell what opportunity zone is good, what opportunity zone is not good. And I've had these conversations with CPAs numerous times. And so this is where having a firm or people who do due diligence on assets is really critical. So anytime we talk to somebody about an opportunity zone, and this is by no means the only strategy that we use, it's, it, it's one tool in our toolbox, but we have third-party law firms do due diligence on the human capital, on the human capital. We want to make sure they have the requisite experience. We do financial and background checks, fi financial background checks and criminal background checks to make sure they are in good standing financially and they're not bad people. Once they pass that test, we then have third-party uh, accounting firms re-underwrite the deal because nobody developing something ever thought it wasn't the best thing since sliced bread. It's always the greatest thing on the planet. 
So we want to make sure the numbers they are showing are within the realm of reasonable expectations. So we have third-party uh, firms analyze these deals, and then we get tax opinions on these deals from third-party law firms. So we do that. And when we do that, it dramatically reduces the number of opportunity zone funds that are investable. Um, there's, I believe, 4,400 private placements every year, the SEC and FINRA say. Um, most of these are uninvestable. It's just kind of friends and family type uh, um, uh, investing opportunities. But the ones that make it all the way through the ecosystem uh, of due diligence and underwriting, they find their way to us because of, uh, you know, the, the, the homework we do on it. And we'll do site visits. We'll fly um, out and, and walk the property and make sure everything is legitimate. Then it goes into consideration. And we have, you know, numerous opportunity zones that have um, met this, these criteria that may be a solution for somebody. But one of the things that people, I think, often miss is we tend to be very binary. It's like, all right, I've got $10 million. What one thing do I do? I put it all in this thing, right? Whatever this thing is. Typically, you should probably use a couple different strategies. So maybe you are charitable and you want to put a third of it in chair in, in some sort of charitable structure. Maybe you do like the idea of an opportunity zone because the tax benefits are fairly substantial. And so you put a, a chunk there. Maybe you do like the idea of an installment sale on some piece and you put some there. And there's other things you can do as well, but breaking it up, anytime somebody says you should put all your money in said strategy or said product, that to me is a little bit of a red flag. Interesting. So you're advocating for a portfolio approach based on the investor's goals. In this case, the business seller is going to get proceeds from a sale and ahead of time develop a strategy strategies for how to allocate those net proceeds. So in the examples you shared, I just want to make sure I'm understanding the, the tactic of it. They'll sell the company. They'll determine what amount of the net proceeds will go where. And the opportunity zone, are they themselves determining how much to buy in on? Or does the fund, the opportunity zone, the fund administrators, the directors of it saying, you know, minimum, there's a minimum buy-in of this amount or maximum this amount, and then they determine? There is a minimum buy-in, but let me step back for a second. If you were to go down the charitable structure route or the installment sale route, that would have to be decided ahead of time. You could not do that afterward. The benefit of an opportunity zone, and once again, not the only thing someone should consider and not, there is no best product or best strategy or best solution. Everything is facts and circumstance dependent. But the Opportunity Zone gives you 180 days post-sale to make that decision. So, you know, if you're looking at a dozen different Opportunity Zones and you've got $10 million, you might diversify across a dozen of them with about 800 grand each to, uh, to diversify across that. Typically, you're not going to find many people who think diversification is a bad thing. You know, I, I have a friend who says concentration, concentration makes you rich, diversification keeps you rich. And so, um, but you might have 12 opportunity zones, two of them you might not like. So then you decide to, you decide to uh, allocate 10 across whatever amount of money you decide to, to allocate towards that. If it's $3 million, then you're putting $300,000 in 10 different opportunity zones. 
If it's $10 million, you're putting a million dollars in each opportunity zone. And the way the code works, to be clear, what you're doing is you are deferring the tax on the transaction until 2026, payable in 2027. But what opportunity zones do is because of the, the, um, the code requires economic development. So you are bringing something out of the ground is real estate developed more often than not. Um, they will do a debt refinance distribution. Once the property is, the project is stabilized, they will do a debt refinance distribution. That distribution will be paid to you. It's tax-free because it's a debt refinance. Well, you, you will then use it to pay the tax due in 2027. Now, once those assets are stabilized, they will pay income at whatever whatever rate the, the, the fund is, is going to pay it. And at the end of 10 years, you will then, the property will be sold typically to a REIT and you will receive all proceeds uh, tax-free. No tax, no depreciation recapture, no income tax, no capital gains tax, nothing. And typically the return is pretty nice. I'm not going to say it because I don't want to overpromise, underdeliver, or anything like that because you know how things happen. And also from a compliance standpoint, but the the tax-free nature and the rate of return on those tends to be fairly fairly nice, if if we should say so. Gotcha. Now you mentioned the year 2027 a couple of times. Is that because this is expiring in the tax code? Is that why? No, it's uh, it's basically you defer the tax to 26 is the way the code works. You defer it to 26 and then in 27, so at the end of tax year 26, 27, whether it's April or October 15th is when the tax is due. Now the tax, there's been a couple parts of it that have sunset already. They, uh, they do need to kind of um, update it. Um, it does appear to be one of the few things in Congress that there is bipartisan support on to update it, but it, whether it happens this year, next year, the year after, or any, any time at all, we don't know. So there's maybe a few more years to enjoy something like this, and then we have to see what happens. That's correct. Okay, I gotcha. And it probably also is worth noting that this is not necessarily liquid, right? You put your money in and it's in there for X number of years. That's a very good point. It is not a it is not a liquid asset. Now there are structures that pay income, there are structures that pay substantial income, but it's not a liquid asset. And if liquidity is a deal killer for you, then it's probably not the right thing for you. This is part of the reason why maybe you use multiple structures on the proceeds of your sale, or maybe you don't use this structure, maybe you use an installment sale, or maybe you pay the tax. Um, some people do pay the tax and that's okay. Or maybe you use a charitable structure of some kind. There are, um, there, there's lots of different things and there, there really is no one trick pony or one magic bullet. The one thing I learned in this business is if you want to do something to reduce your tax, you're going to have to do something different with your money than what you've done previously. And so there's a trade-off and some people don't like that and that's okay. It may not be for you. Gotcha. What do you think are the top success factors that need to be in play for an owner to exit without regrets? They need to have a plan afterwards. Uh, I'm going to make a very opinionated statement here. I think retirement is a con. I think it's miserable. The idea of retirement is nauseating to me. I'll never retire in my life. 
And I've seen more people go into depression, commit suicide, and do all sorts of thing, things after retirement. So you can only play so much golf. You can only travel so much. So if that's your retirement plan, you better think again, because most of us, our identity is in what we do. And when you take away that, it's not pretty. How do people separate and create that other identity if they don't have one? Well, it's, I think it's challenging, especially if you're older. It's like, how do you retrain your mind to think? Because most of us, our identity is in what we do, like I said a second ago, and, and you have to separate your vocation from your identity. And I don't think many people are good at that. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting perspective. I tell people you got to have a game plan. Some people, I like to use the word transition, not retire. I mean, to use the word retire means to take out of service. You know, um, Dan Sullivan, a strategic coach, if anyone else has ever heard, heard him, if you want to Google Dan Sullivan retirement, he's done a lot of research on it. And it's, it's, it's kind of, um, it was basically a government creation 100 plus years ago to prevent the youth from rioting because they needed jobs. And of course, that was in a more industrial time. Time The reality, I mean, people can work forever now because it's it's mostly mental, not physical. But I think you got to have a, you got to be really sure on your identity. You got to have a game plan, you know, just playing with your grandkids or just playing golf or just traveling with your spouse is not enough. You need to have a serious game plan. If I ask you as this, drop the mic question. Okay, ready? Yes. What are three things that you recommend business owners start doing in the next year to be better financially prepared for a future exit? Well, they actually have to start planning. You and I both know and they never do that. They need to be talking to somebody like Lori who can actually help them get their ducks in a row because 99% of business owners are really good at running a business, but terrible at planning for the exit of the business. Because as you know, and as you say in your book, everyone leaves their business. Some people say, most of us standing up, but some people laying in a coffin. I think horizontally or vertically, but yeah, yes, that's, better. That's, wrong. That's, 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 that's a better, that's, that's a much better way of saying it right there. That is true. That is true. All right. So you've dropped the mic. That's, those are three things. Well, I think that was only one thing. I don't know if I have to. one thing? Um, okay. So start planning, figure out what you're going to do afterwards, figure out what you're going to do afterwards. And then evaluate your life and make sure you're happy with what you've done. Maybe you maybe you feel like you could grow this business more. Maybe you feel like you've spent too much of your life in the business and you want to give back in life some other way. Do a self-assessment. Write your own eulogy right now and see if you like how it sounds. And if you don't, maybe you change things up. Alfred Nobel style. He created dynamite. Swedish inventor who created dynamite. Do you know the oh, story about Alfred Nobel? I do know. Most people don't realize the guy who was uh, the the basically the Peace Prize is written after is named after created one of the most destructive things in the That's history right. of mankind. I don't know the specifics. I just know that. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's just like you're saying. His brother passed away, but instead of the obituary being for the brother, it was for him. So he read his own obituary. And how he was remembered in this obituary was for the creation of dynamite and destruction of, of very, you know, he was very unpleased with that. That's not how he wanted to be remembered. So he created the Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, wow. That's the story. 
Your point about retirement and transition, of course, I, I agree with you on the word transition. I use it for the same reasons you talked about. It's a point in time. It's a movement. I think people can be happy with their next and what, but what they plan for is what they make happen. And if you don't plan, then nothing's going to happen. Well, I think it's a great message that you're sharing. That's a really good point, though. This is kind of a pet peeve. So many people let life happen to them instead of letting them dictate to life what's going to happen. And it's easy to. Life is busy. Everyone's busy. But if we actually plan out what we want to happen, more often than not, and we take the steps, it's going to happen. But most of us just exist and let life happen to us. And by the way, when that happens, it typically doesn't go how you want it. Right. Many people share quotes on the show. Ross, do you have one that you want to share with us? Well, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to steal one out of your book. Okay. <laughs> okay. The best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best is today. That is a great quote. It's fantastic. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of things you and I wish we did 20 years ago. Absolutely. And we can always change a plan, but, but having a plan is better than not having one. Yes. So it's very, very important. Ross, I'm sure people listening are curious to learn more. How can they get in touch with you? Uh, you can email me at ross at rossbrannon.com. That's B-R-A-N-N-O-N.com, ross at rossbrannon.com. Or you can call me. I will pick up the phone no matter who calls. I And if I don't like this, the telemarketer, I just hang up on them or tell them bye. So you will not bother me with a phone call. 850-566-7999, 850-566-7999. I'm definitely more of a phone person than an email person, but I'll respond to emails. I get a gajillion a day, and I replied to all of them. Awesome. Ross, thank you so much for coming on the show with me today. Is there anything else that you wanted to share that I didn't ask you? Well, I just think if you're serious about even potentially selling your business, you should be talking to someone like Lori. I mean, she's written a book on it. She's done this. This is her wheelhouse. Even if you never sell, she can help you increase the value and the revenue and everything. Um, where, you know, you're just going to be in a better situation. So I think everyone would be better working with someone like you, Lori, uh, even if they never sell. Um, so I just think people should really seriously consider having a conversation with you. Wow. Thank you so much. What an endorsement. That was truly unscripted. That was unscripted. <laughs> unscripted. People are thinking I probably paid you for that. I did not. <laughs> oh, well, Ross, again, thank you so much for being here. listeners. Be sure to follow Succession Stories in your favorite podcast player and YouTube and leave us a review. Five stars helps us get discovered. Learn more about maximizing the value of your business and planning for transition by visiting my website, thebusinesstransitionsherpa.com. You can sign up for my newsletter and book a complimentary call with me. Join me next time on Succession Stories for more insights from transition to transaction. I hope that today's episode resonated with you. What actions will you take as a result? If you want to grow, sell, or transition your business, our strategic transition planning process provides clarity and objectivity on the big questions that may be weighing on your mind. Make an intention and take the next step. Set up a complimentary consultation with me to discuss your goals at thebusinesstransitionsherpa.com. That's thebusinesstransitionsherpa.com.